The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm your host, Ken Smith. Sitting alongside my business partner, Ethan Broga. Good afternoon, Ethan. Just glad to be here. Thank you very much. Ethan's a certified financial planner with a master's degree in financial planning. So if you have any questions throughout the program, please feel free to forward us an email or give us a call. And uh, he'll be happy to give you an answer on the spot. Most likely uh, incredibly accurate. Our... uh, this show is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning ideas to help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. And um, hopefully, if you're listening to us all throughout 2013, uh, the advice we were giving um, bore reasonably good results with an investment portfolio, at least, Ethan. True enough. I can't speak for your financial planning advice. <laughs> but, um, no, I think it was all very good. And uh, I, think, I think our listeners would have done very, very well. That's over the funny. last year, hopefully, um, we'll continue to provide insights on how to build better portfolios, how to take advantage of various financial planning strategies uh, throughout 2014 as well. Either that we could go through the numbers for 2013 and uh, and then go through some of the investment material we've been reading throughout the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, one of the ideas is as you're getting your Reports for the year and, and for the quarter, last quarter, uh, I had an art- article on benchmarking that we had started to talk about last week, how to, how to evaluate your performance. Uh, I thought maybe we could talk about how to, how to decide whether or not you need to be switching your strategy or changing that, um, a fresh new approach to that. And there's a, a study that was published that I want to talk a little bit about that studied the results or the differing results between brokerage sold funds or directly uh, purchased investment mutual funds and some interesting points I, I think we can glean out of that article and make um, as a result of, of having gone through it. Before we do that, would you mind sharing with our listeners how we might be able to help them throughout the week off the air here at Empirical? Yeah, you bet, Ken, you bet. Um, yeah, if you're an individual investor out there, there's a couple things we, we could do for you if you'd like to, to get together with us. If you're looking for something as simple as a second opinion on your portfolio, Maybe you don't know, hey, what's the best allocation for me given my situation? How, how are my investments currently set up relative to what empirical, what would you guys uh, think of those? Uh, we can do that type of examination for you. Um, if you're looking for perhaps a, uh, a more comprehensive view on things and perhaps you're looking toward retirement, uh, that is something we specialize here uh, in, in empirical. Uh, 
combination of your investments, the, the tax planning that we offer, and also the retirement planning. Those three, three things are really at the core, at the heart of what we offer for folks, and we'd be happy to sit down and, and see how we might be able to help you if you'd like to get together with us. We can be reached throughout the week here at the office in the downtown uh, Empirical Towers at 206-923-3474, uh, and we'd be happy to speak with you. Just call and uh, ask for Ken or Ethan. Oh, and, and do, Ken, one more thing. We do have a... Uh, uh, retirement workshop, actually several of them coming up here later on this month. Uh, there's going to be two in Edmonds later on in January, the last week of January. First one is at January uh, 27th at 6 p.m. at the Edmonds Conference Center. And the other one is on Thursday afternoon at around 11 o'clock at the same place up in Edmonds. Um, there are also two seminars, the same topic, um, Six Secrets of Retirement Success, uh, here locally in Seattle as well, both on Tuesday and Wednesday uh, the 28th and 29th. So if you'd love to maybe perhaps uh, get together and see what we have to offer uh, in an informal presentation format, feel free to give us a call and we can uh, res- re- give you a reservation to come to those any of those events. Okay, we should roll into the uh, year-end review type That thing? sounds great, Ethan. Let's take a look. at market was down today about 135 points, uh, a little pullback after a pretty amazing close of, of 2013 in stocks, and I'm sure you'll go through. It really was. And um, I do want to uh, talk about the emerging markets a little bit, too, and down quite a bit today. Sure. Um, actually, almost uh, 4% in on the just the emerging market ETF, the VWO, that I like to track. Uh, it's just one of, of several. But um, So go ahead and go through, and then yeah, we'll, right. we'll talk about that and put that in light of this... Um, a nice little Wall Street article, journal article about uh, trying to predict the, the the stock market returns. Right. Yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, 2013 was a fantastic year for for almost all stocks. Uh, the rare exceptions to that happened to be things like um, uh, commodities. Specifically, wasn't very good throughout the year, down about nine percent. Uh, but other than that, looking at most of the equity asset classes, really, really positive, strong year. Uh, S and P composite about thirty two percent for the year which is a very, very strong strong period. Um, looking at other things, like, for example, the All Country World Index, looking there at about uh, 22.8%. So very strong across all equity markets. Looking at the equity markets specifically in, in greater detail, um, the best-performing asset class of the ones that we like to follow, and there's usually about 15 or so in our, our uh, globally diversified portfolios, uh, was the U.S. microcap portfolio, up a staggering 45% for 2013. Very, very high returns there. Uh, looking at some other things. Value specifically. Amazing. Yeah. U.S. targeted value about 43%. Uh, small growth, 42%. Small cap value up 42%. Um, small cap just plain vanilla sort of uh, blend again. No surprise there. 42% for the year. That's amazing. I mean, that's how many years of re- average returns is that in just one, yeah, in one, one year. year? Really amazing. Large cap value looking at 40%. Uh, looking at Going down the line here, U.S. large cap, yeah, same thing as the S&P there, about 33 32%. Uh, international small value, here's one, 32.3%. That might surprise some folks. International leg throughout the year, most of the year, uh, but small cap value in the international area specifically did very, very well. Um, let's see here, going down the list. International small, 27% year-to-date return, so... Getting some extra premium there from the small asset classes relative to large in that particular area. Uh, going on down the list here further. International value up about 
23% for the year. Not bad at all. Uh, further down the list, large cap international stocks, 20%. Uh, really, really amazing returns across the board. Beyond that, we started to get, to get into things like uh, global real estate, uh, 1.7% for the year. So not, not, not great there. Uh, and then looking at some other things like emerging markets, they really struggled this year. Uh, down collectively around 3% or so, depending on the, the type of emerging market asset class. Um, so not, not great performance there. And as you mentioned, uh, a bit of a, a blow today as well when stocks were all negative across the board, but emerging markets especially. Yeah, if you so, count today's decline, it looks like for the last rolling 12-month period, then it would be uh, emerging markets down around 9.13% okay. um, using the EEM Emerging Markets uh, iShares ETF as a, just a proxy that we're tracking there. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, huge negative day today in emerging markets. And um, I was just reading on it, you know, went to um, looking at, I like to check all these little articles on Yahoo Finance and all these places. And um, the article by Zach's Equity Research says, Emerging Markets, once a favorite investing destination is Mostly seen a pathetic 2013 thanks to the taper talk by the Federal Reserve. Fears deepened again when the Federal, uh, when the Fed finally decided on moderate tape, tapering worth $10 billion per month starting in January 2014. Domestic capacity constraints, falling currencies, higher inflation, and the expected cease of cheap dollar on the QE taper weighed on emerging markets this year. Most of the emerging markets funds closed out uh, 2013 in the red. Mm-hmm. Top ETFs like the Vanguard FTSE Emerging Markets ETF, um, the iShares Emerging Market, Wisdom Tree, um, and uh, Wisdom Tree Emerging Markets High Yielding Equity Fund shedding more or less 10%. If these were not enough, Goldman Sachs' warning on emerging market investing was another nail in the coffin. In a recent report, the bank forecasted, Quote, the strong possibility of significant underperformance and heightened volatility over the next five to ten years. Hmm. The investment banking firm also suggested investors with moderate risk tolerance to cut down their emerging market holdings by one-third from 9% to 6% of their overall portfolio. Behind Goldman's uh, skepticism, it published a 59-page report and argued that emerging market outperformance from 2003 to seven was due to some specific economic tailwinds which are unlikely to resurface rather than holding the Fed. Taper talk solely responsible for the recent underperformance. Goldman pointed to structural problems in those nations. Hmm. Um, As per Goldman, the downside investors' perception about emerging markets has been noticed due to high volatility as well as the lower than expected growth rate and the subsequent returns. So anyway, uh, they are expecting, and I think this is cool because I like to track the little predictions um Mm -hmm. they expect now only low single digit returns out of emerging market debt in 2014 with profits and losses around 10 percent the banking giant predicts high single digit returns for stocks with gains or losses of approximately 20 percent i don't know what that means exactly Hmm. uh, with gains or losses a little confusing our take, the worries are definitely building up on emerging markets in the next year's taper stricken environment Investors should note that emerging markets have already taken much of the taper sh- shock in stride. In fact, broader emerging market funds have gained, though marginally, in the last five days. Although I would say that that today wiped that out. Um, this was published on the thirty-first. Um, in such a situation, investors should be extra careful before investing in those countries. While picking nations, the only criteria should be 
better inherent strength than, than too much of dependence of foreign capital. Secondly, though the Fed will scale back up the QE program, the bulk of the stimulus, about $75 billion a month, still remains in place. The Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke commented the bond buying program will be curtailed in phases in 2014 if improvement in the labor uh, market is in accordance with their expectation and might be completed by late 2014. Thus, we believe that there is still time before one gets too bearish on emerging, emerging markets and nations. Um, so I don't have to go through all that, but I, I th- the worse, the, the more difficulty they have in terms of return, it makes sense that you'll see these types of articles. And um, As you were going through the different returns, it's actually quite exciting to see how the, the model of diversification works. Yes, I agree. Um, rather than looking at it as a failure if you had emerging markets in your portfolio over the last year, look at the success of diversifying among all those different asset classes and accept some of that downside volatility and the, and the setbacks that you get in any one year in one particular investment category or class of countries um, or style, real mm-hmm. estate versus equities versus small versus large. Um, and say, hey, that, that's why I actually own these countries. And if anything, rather than taking Goldman Sachs' advice of lowering your allocation when emerging markets is trading at a very reasonable price at this point, right? I would almost encourage you to do the exact opposite, and we'll see who, who's right over the next few years mm-hmm. at this point, um, and rebalance back towards emerging markets and maybe even increase your allocation towards them if you're looking for a higher expected return. Mm-hmm. We've got to take a quick break, Ethan. Let's uh, do so. We'll get back on our overview of the 2013 market and looking forward into 2014 on Empirical Investing Radio. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Did you ever stop to think that financial health can be a lot like physical health? The financial physician, Luce Katigna, has helped people on the radio for nearly 15 years. And now he's part of the Voice America Business Channel. By using medical analogies to discuss financial solutions, Lou actually makes the process easier to understand and will help you chart your own financial fitness. Tune in to The Financial Physician, live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, and on demand anytime on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Thank you for joining us today on Empirical Investing Radio. Uh, Ken, we're just finishing up sort of a market recap for last year. Any other comments or thoughts on, on the year end for us? Well, I interrupted when you got to the emerging markets. Did you have other categories? I, I know gold is down about 27.5% over the last year. Um, crude oil, actually down around 4.67. The... Um, I don't know if you you were going. Is there other asset we, class you want to go? We covered to? U.S. large, uh, or rather the U.S. stocks. We tapped on some of the higher performing assets uh, of international. Um, they're all pretty even across the board outside of uh, emerging markets. So I feel pretty good about that summary there. Yeah, if we look at the closing, I mean, right now the ten-year Treasury yield uh, almost three percent, hmm. and from a year ago uh, it was around two percent, so a full one percent increase. Wow! Yeah, um, in the yield on the ten-year, mm-hmm. which. Um, yeah, the five-year, too. Yeah. Big difference there, about a percent difference. Yeah, exactly. 1.72 versus 0.96 last year. So wow. rates are still relatively low across the board as I'm just looking down all the different categories. But um, at least there's a little more to work with there mm-hmm. this year, going right. into this year. And um, if you have any questions about that or what we're doing on the fixed income side to manage the impending interest rate risk, please give us a call or talk to us. We've talked about it a lot on the program and, and in person. So yeah, love to talk about that. Um, talking about the emerging markets, we had to take a quick break. You know, in that article, they were talking about specific country um, issues. And um, my, I just wanted to disclose that my recommendation would be that you don't get involved in trying to pick winning countries. That's a very difficult, if you look year to year, at the difference in returns um, in individual countries. It's a very difficult thing game to play. My view would be um, don't take the advice of the traditional active guys and try to pick out a few good countries. Own the entire emerging market index. Right. And let them do it and weight it proportionally. Um, that's not a game that you want to get involved in. And, and here's just leading into that, Ethan, if mm-hmm. um, the article why market forecasts are so bad uh, is a pretty interesting by Joe Light in the Wall Street Journal and it was um, analyst predictions are frequently less accurate than random guesses this was from December 20th actually but very very relevant going into the new year with all the predictions on the various uh, financial so-called professionals make Um, we don't get into making individual year estimates of what each global stock market is going to do. We think that's a pretty futile exercise, so we've never done it. If anything, we look over longer periods of time, and I would suggest you you map out something over a 10-year period of time, and you take a look at uh, the possible ranges of, of returns that the market could project and relate that to the current valuation. And you can you can at least put together a capital market expectation that will fall within a, 
a reasonable range, but when you get into one year, it's such a a, um, a wide range of numbers and is so unpredictable because of the speculative component of the market. Right. That um, and and let's just read through this. The oracles known as the Wall Street strategists have spoken. The S and P will rise six point four percent by the end of two thousand fourteen. But the evidence shows. You do just as well guessing yourself. It isn't supposed to be that way. Strategists use complex models to forecast earnings growth, price-to-earnings ratios, and other market-driving factors. In the 21st century, apparently that effort has been for not. Take the prediction, <laughs> predictions that strategists made in December of 2012. So here's our vault segment. Right. Exactly. Where we pull out the predictions. Attempting to forecast the S&P 500 this year, or for 2013, research firm uh, Berini Associates collected such projections by 11 strategists from Wall Street's largest firms, including Morgan Stanley and Bank of America. On average, the analysts thought that the S&P would rise 8.2% in 2013. The S&P had actually risen at the time of this publication 27.5%. Not including the dividends, a difference of nineteen point three percentage points. Um, yeah, it's just to, to put that in perspective. Let's say you pinned a list of all the annual S and P five hundred percentage changes since nineteen twenty nine. So basically, what what did the what did the market do each year? Mm-hmm. And you threw those all on a, a board, and you said uh, you blindly threw a dart at it. More than half the time, the number you landed on would have come closer to the 2013's actual price change than the analyst cons- consensus for the year. A Wall Street Journal anal- analysis shows based on data from Brini and, and the historical returns. Since 2000, analysts have also done worse than the dart thrower in 2001, 2, and 2008. Winning 10 out of the 14 times wouldn't be so bad were it not against such a mindless opponent. Forecasting stock returns a year in advance is exceedingly difficult, often failing to foresee one big event, such as the Federal Reserve's decision not to slow its bond buying program in December. And that can mean the difference between close or whiffing, says Tobias Lekavchiv, chief U.S. equity strategist at Citigroup. So, last December... Mr. L thought that the S&P would close at 6.15 this year. That made him the most accurate of the strategists tracked, but the estimate is still on track to be much too low. On Friday, the S&P had closed at 18.18. And where is it right now, Ethan? After today, here it is, um, 18.31. But it closed 18.48 for the year. Yeah, right. Um. Stifle strategist Barry Bannister in December 2012 predicted the S&P would close close uh, at 1,600 this year. Wow. That's an enormous um, miss. He said that uh, strategists are more like drag racers than Grand Prix racers. That is, they're good at making predictions on the straightaways, but are usually too early or late when markets turn. He says he didn't anticipate anticipate 2013's ebulence and he thinks the market will be flat in 2014 they got it so right in 13 we should be taking his advice for next year <laughs> um, this, 
is he more likely to get it right because he got it wrong the first year? <laughs> One of these days he's going to get it right. Uh, but in forecasting, you've got to set the bar somewhere. Take weather, weather forecast. One easy but very rough way to guess uh, Monday's weather would be to look at December 23rd of the past in New York's Central Park. That day on average has been a chilly 35 degrees and seen 0.13 inches of precipitation, according to the National Weather Service data from 1981 to 2010. Mm-hmm. Of course, forecasters try to do better by using powerful computers to analyze weather patterns. If over time all that computing power doesn't result in a better weather forecast, we might as well shut down the computers and rely on those averages. Stocks, for their part, have historical price changes for the S&P, and stock strategists use complex models to try to be more accurate. But if the brain power doesn't result in a more accurate forecast, we might as well stick to historical returns. Since 2000, strategists have failed to meet that very low bar. Say that at the end of the each year, you found that the median annual change in the S&P since 1929 and use that as your guess for the next year's price change. For example, in 2006, your guess would have been 9.06, the median price change between 29 and 2005. That method would have beaten strategists half the time since the year 2000, according to the Wall Street Journal analysis. It doesn't give you any positive evidence that analysts are providing added information says Brad Barber, a finance professor at the University of California, Davis, who has researched the value of analyst recommendations and earnings forecasts. To be sure, Barber says that we need a larger sample size to prove definitely that strategist forecasts don't have any value. So what's the problem? Well, for one, since 2000, strategists as a group have never forecast a drop in stocks. The upward bias makes some sense. Stocks have risen 55 out of 85 of the years, going back to 1929. But the optimism could also reflect Wall Street's tendency to be forgiving of bullish strategists who end up being wrong. He says a Wall Street friend gave him some advice. If you're a bull and you're wrong, you're forgiven. If you're a bull and you're right, they love you. If you're a bear and you're right, you're respected. If you're a bear and you're wrong, you're fired. Mr. L, uh, who thinks that the S&P will rise to 1900 next year, says that he would make a negative forecast if the circumstances warranted it. But the larger issue might be simpler. Forecasting the stock market accurately is extremely difficult, if not impossible, says Masako Dara, an accounting professor at Barack College who has research biases and analyst earnings forecasts. Rather than invest more or less in stocks based on strategist calls, she says most investors are better off sticking with their usual allocations for planning purposes to assume that stocks over the long run will rise at their usual pace. Since 1926, large company stocks have had an annual return of 9.8% per year, including dividends. Cut strategists who make projections some slack, but don't bet on their accuracy. Well, this would apply to the emerging markets. So we were just reading about Goldman Sachs' viewpoint on the emerging markets, but I, I think we'll We'll find that in more years, uh, more times, more often than not, Ethan, mm-hmm. they will be, particularly over short periods of time, dramatically off. There's not a there's not enough accuracy in the predictions, and I get this question a lot about looking back at historical data because in the active world of investing or the traditional, um, the idea of looking back into the into the past to see how how markets have reacted in different cycles has some sort of uh, naive connotation to it that somehow 
you would put less emphasis on that because no matter where we are in history, things are always different. They, times are changing. Right. But consistently, the evidence, the empirical data is showing that, well, actually, in a lot of cases, just like trying to predict annual stock market returns, um, it's more reliable than the best the best knowledge right. of that of that time period. Mm-hmm. Well, we got to take a quick break again, Ethan, and um, we'll do so and come right back on Empirical Investing Radio. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Are you a decision maker in your organization, a mid-level manager, or a team member? Stepping Stones to Everyday Success with host Kimberly Stewart is a program designed to provide you with tidbits and tools you need to achieve results no matter where you are in your organizational structure. Interaction is key, and you'll have opportunities to share your ideas, comments, and questions. Listen to Stepping Stones to Everyday Success, live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back. Thanks for joining us on Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Uh, we were just finishing up uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal about market forecasting, and one of our well frequent topics on the show, anyhow. And uh, just some parting thoughts or finishing thoughts on this. This, Ken, what do you, anything else you'd like to discuss on this? Well, the point that we were making, Ethan, is that just because, and during the break we were talking about, we've seen the statistics or the empirical data on all of this, and. Um, that is why we look at the the historic because it has been far a far better guide right. um, of how our economic system and our capital market system works. Um, looking at the research on how these capital markets work, then trying to interpret the daily news events uh, or make instinctive predictions about where the market's going simply because, for example, last year there might be a group of investors who feel well because it did so well, it's bound to do poorly this coming year. 
or vice versa, there may be a group of investors now that you mentioned something in the 48, what was the uh, micro cap or small cap? Yeah, exactly. It's up over 40 plus percent. A group of investors might say, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to rebalance my portfolio and I'm going to minim- reduce the amount of emerging markets for Goldman Sachs advice here. Yeah. And Ethan just mentioned that uh, where I should have been last year. is micro cap. It's micro cap, right? 45 percent. But that's not the message you would you would convey smart investors should be doing at all. Right. Um, in fact, it would be very, very different. It'd be based on how far out of alignment you are with your original portfolio target. You might be selling some small, some micro cap to rebalance to buy more emerging markets. And right. it's not that that works perfectly in any single year that makes that concept or this idea of of an asset allocation approach to investing magical or a silver bullet. It's that it works over a long period of time. Right. It's the consistency and the discipline of it that works. Uh, because if it did, if it, you're just buying something that's gone down always worked, that doesn't necessarily guarantee you great results either. It's owning all of them, knowing why you own them, and really only deviating, as, as the professor said, you're, you're reiterating it, the summary she gave, which is, in most people, which to me means almost all individual unless money. you can predict the future right or or you don't mind throwing money away you know you're like right? <laughs> right there are some people who don't care yeah i like to speculate or get but assuming you want to make the most the decision that yields the highest returning results mm-hmm. um you know then that's what you would do and so don't be my encouragement to you is to stay focused on your long-run ob- obje- objectives and where you're at in terms of your risk tolerance and your time frame, and make adjustments in accordance with that systematically and let less, let, what should affect the least amount of effect on, on that is which particular asset class did the best or worst over some short period of time. Right. Um, and you, you, you've said it multiple times. Hey, all these asset classes should be gravitating in the long run towards some return we don't expect microcap for the next 20 years to do 40% a year and and emerging markets to do a negative 4% a year right that that, that wouldn't be a, a reasonable expectation right. to have mm-hmm. on either account agreed we would expect them to gravitate towards some range and maybe on an annual basis over the next 20 or 30 years they they could even be up to maybe 4 or 5% apart in return but that's much different than a positive 40 and a negative 10, right? Um, particularly on a compounded basis. Yeah. So you, you're you realizing that they're all heading to the same place. They're taking different routes to get there. And the fact that they're taking different routes to get there smooths out the ride. Yes. Ultimately, and assures that you'll, you'll have a, a, a better chance at any one point in time along the way of participating um, and not being caught in the, in the particular group that... I mean, it's great to get, if you had all your money in microcap, who wouldn't like that last year? Yeah, sure. Should have made 40, what, 45%. 45% in one year. In a market that, on this very show, we were reading article after article that uh, the end of 2012 of uh, ridiculous articles from these guys that actually should, should lose their jobs for saying this stuff, but about how market returns will be so low, you can't even afford, you know, <laughs> To right. have any advice? I recall. It's yeah. talking about um, that. I'd like to dig that one up and call that particular author up and see if we can get him on. But All right, right. And, and that's why it's it's. I think it's very tough to be a successful investor, 
even though the the what needs to be done is very simple. I, I, it is simple in a way, and I think if you have the discipline, this is a, the type of year that's is emblematic of, of what you want to do in all years, which is you want to be able to sell when things are higher and buy when things are lower. And if you have a consistent allocation among the different equity asset classes, um, this, this, this framework allows you to always make the right decision over the long run. And very simply put, right? You want to buy, buy low and sell high by rebalancing and keeping different asset classes that actually don't all perform the same, in the same manner over the same period of time. You get exactly that. And if you're disciplined about it, the returns are going to be there for you over time. You are correct, sir. Ethan, I, I would um, like to transition into this uh, research paper. Um, if, you're, if you would entertain me on that. Um, sure, sure. Mutual Fund Performance and the Incentive to Generate Alpha by Diane DelGruccio and Jonathan Reuter. Uh, being published in the Journal of Finance, it's been a, a peer-reviewed study, and um, Diane is at the Lundquist College of Business, University of Oregon, and Jonathan Reuter is at Carroll School of Management, Boston College, and they did a, a study, um, and I was actually, I review um, author Larry Swedro's blog frequently, and he pointed this out, I see it oh, in his uh-huh. comments, um, to determine if incentives drive investor decisions when choosing mutual funds, they um, came up with a unique take on the performance of funds. They divided the marketplace into two distinct segments, funds that are marketed directly to retail investors and funds that are sold through brokers, and they found several important differences. I thought we'd talk about it. That'd be great. Last segment or two here. Uh, blame the brokers for the poor performance. First, they found that while it is well documented that actively managed funds underperform, which I think as a group is an interesting comment, once the funds were segmented, the underperformance is basically explained by the poor performance of the funds sold through brokers. They found that actively managed funds marketed directly to the public performed similarly to index funds. The difference was 1.8 basis points per month, or about 0.22% per year. Funds sold through brokers underperformed by 9.3 basis points per month, or 1.12% per year. Um, Avoid the raw return. Second, risk-adjusted performance impacts the cash flows of the funds that are sold directly to retail investors. Investors increase uh, flows to funds with superior adjusted returns. However, this is not the case for active managed funds sold through brokers. Investors and funds sold through brokers have fund flows that follow raw returns, not returns adjusted for risk. The naive behavior can be explained by the result from a study on defined contribution plans, which found the participants who chose to invest through a broker are younger, less highly educated, and less highly paid than self-directed investors, suggesting that they are less experienced. Brokers are able to exploit the lack of knowledge and inexperience and recommend funds that provide them with greater compensation. Third, they found that the funds sold directly to the public are more likely to hire portfolio managers from undergraduate institutions with higher average math and SAT scores than families with broker-sold funds. And uh, either I read through a pretty good chunk um, of this. I don't think through Larry's comments here. Fourth, direct-sold direct fund families 
about as half half as likely to hire sub-advisors as broker-sold families. Approximately 22% of broker-sold funds have sub-advisor versus roughly 12% of the direct. This is important because it has been found that funds run by sub-advisors underperform the sub-advisor's own brand. So basically, your funds and their subcontracting to have people manage their, their money for them. Mm-hmm. And I guess you could determine or you could infer that, well, they don't really care as much since it's not really their brand that's at stake. Um, the study authors drew this conclusion. Direct sold funds are less willing to sacrifice performance in order to meet other family objectives, such as expanding fund offerings to include investment styles outside of their current expertise. The authors concluded the fact that the vast majority of uh, the assets in the brokerage sold segment are invested in underperforming actively managed funds is likely to reflect an agency conflict or a conflict of interest between brokers and their clients. The brokers tend to recommend funds that compensate them the most. And these funds have higher expenses because of the need to compensate the fund managers as well as the brokers selling the product. Right. The higher expense creates the higher hurdle, which active managers have not been able to overcome. This conflict of interest is easily overcome by insisting on a fiduciary standard of care. You love that one. (laughs) And by requiring that any compensation a buyer receives should come solely from the client in the form of fees, not commissions. So I think after when we have to take the break, we'll take a break. When we come back, I'd like to... I read through a, a pretty good chunk of this, and I, I'd like to summarize it a little clearer as to what the results are. But in essence, basically, they're saying if you go to a, a brokerage company and you buy a fund um, where the broker is receiving a commission, more than likely or not, there's some extra expense put into the fund. It, traditionally, it may be what they call an A share where you pay a load, and that load or sales charge can be... I don't know, 3 to 5% depending on the particular fund and how much you're buying of it. Mm-hmm. And that that sales charge would go to the uh, the broker and the brokerage company that they're working at. Right. And um, there's still surprisingly a great amount of money in these types of funds. It's, a, it's shocking how um, much money's in those things. And what Larry did mention in this article well, that I thought was really interesting when I was reading through it, um, right in the introduction of the paper, and it's about a 79 pages, so... Um, if you're interested in looking at it, I, you can pull the paper up very quickly. Just Google searching mutual fund performance and the incentive to generate alpha. Alpha being the idea of adding additional return over a mm-hmm. simple market index portfolio and doing so without increasing the risk. That's really the layman's definition of alpha. Mm-hmm. How can I get more return without taking on more risk? Um, and... And so they, they say, well, one of the things that's, that's flustered academics is the fact that the data on, on, as a, on active mutual funds, it's mutual fund companies that aren't building you a financial plan or getting into your, your personal life and helping you make smarter financial decisions, but simply picking sec- securities in a, in a bucket for a whole group of investors, right? And as a group, these guys who charge typically a significantly higher fee than a mutual fund that would just capture an entire segment of the market have not been able to support their higher fees with additional performance. Right. And um, we're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to pick up on that. But they're flustered by the poor results and why investors still haven't 
change? Why they're still buying these funds? Um, and when we come back, I'll talk about that and like a little it. bit of uh, ideas on how, how you can use this research to make better decisions. We'll be right back on Empirical Investing Radio. Kennedy. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Uh, just discussing a, a recent study that was uh, put out about uh, investor behavior and uh, indexing versus sort of active management. And why why are there so many active funds or active investors still out there? And uh, can you have some more thoughts on this? Uh, so the, the study, Ethan, as we were saying, was they divided up, these researchers divided up the active mutual fund world. Mm-hmm. Definition of active is a portfolio that, is deviating from just owning an index or just owning the entire market segment with with typically the objective of adding some return, right? as they, we were defining alpha. And the research, and what I was going to, uh, was, well, funds that are sold by brokers who get a commission do worse. They, as a group, all active managers have underperformed the indexing strategy. Right. So, um so that's one thing. But then their study said, well, maybe we can explain some of that by dividing it into two segments. Those that are sold by brokerage companies and the mutual fund families that support that, and those that are sold directly through 
say, a Charles Schwab or another um, discount brokerage company or a direct see. marketplace to get no-loaded mutual funds, for right. example. And what they found is that the funds sold through brokers where they do sell, the broker gets a commission. The results are that they do they they are what's dragging the general performance of these of the entire active group down mm-hmm. by more than the directly sold no load fund. So if you bought a, a Vanguard, and we we read a study that uh, anal- we analyzed a, a report that Vanguard put out about active management. They were promoting their own actively managed funds. The one thing that Vanguard has going good for it is their lower expense. Right, but sure. absent that. There wasn't a lot of evidence that they would do better, but they have an advantage. Certainly, their stock picker has an advantage when their fund is charging a half a percent a year to do it over the the mutual fund company being sold through a brokerage, which we were saying could have a 5% load right off the bat, Mm -hmm. which the Vanguard fund doesn't have. And then the operating expense traditionally in these funds is higher than, than say, a a low-cost, direct, no-load mutual fund. So that isn't rocket science. I think that John Bogle done had in his group had done research on just categorizing mutual funds, and what you find is well, those with the lower cost tend to rise to the top, not because they're better stock pickers, but simply because the costs are lower. Right. They take this study and the, and, the, and they take it a little further and say, well, maybe there's some other structural things going on there. One being that if people are buying loaded funds through an advisor, they may be less experienced and be less um, critical of underperformance. And so, therefore, the fund companies know that, and they're not putting a whole heck of a lot of effort into trying to beat the market. And their definition is, well, they're not hiring, they're subcontracting out the work to other people who don't have the incentives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're spending less on the research, and certainly they're charging more. So I think that's all very interesting, except even if you eliminated all of them and, and what the study doesn't really account for is do investors who are picking funds on their own directly do better than those that work through a broker? Because that's a more – I like these research articles. I think our job as advisors is to, to not take them in isolation but figure out what the practical application would be. Yeah. And the answer to that question would be, well, it would be better to buy loaded funds through a broker who kept you in a globally diversified portfolio and rebounced it systematically than if you were on your own devices, because there's been t- tons of studies on which the discount brokerage companies don't really want to publish or provide. Nope, there's no huge incentive to get these out there. But if you're out there doing your own day trading, for example, the studies I've seen show that those guys do incredibly worse than a buy and hold investor. Sure. In a diversified por- portfolio. Yeah. The active guy out there day trading his own portfolio or rotating in and out of ETFs or other direct mutual funds is worse than the buy and hold investor. So if that advisor, and we don't believe in that commission-based model anyway, but I'm saying the real issue here is not whether or not brokerage sold actively managed funds do slightly worse than other active because they're, the, the actual end user might be doing worse because what the study doesn't capture is they tend to be, and they do talk about the fact that the, the money chases the alpha in those direct funds more frequently. Yes, exactly. They just don't, they don't follow up in it that I've seen so far going through it and say, well, that, and that's caused, think about the, the technology uh, 
bubble. Right. Money was flooding into these into these Janus funds that were technology focused funds that had done had a lot of alpha relative to other yeah right actively managed mutual funds right. But the average advisor, whether they were commissioned or not, shouldn't have been advising people to just put all their money in those technology focus. They should have been in a diversified portfolio. And whether that each individual fund beat the S and P by half a percent or not wasn't the real issue when tech got hammered, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's possible to be in a fund that did better than its a little better than its benchmark. You know, the actively managed Vanguard fund did a little better at beating the stock market than did the average brokerage sold. The say the growth fund of they used the growth fund of America versus the Vanguard Wellington fund. Yeah, okay. Well that may not be the real issue if somebody rotated you know, the difference in the returns between those two is a lot different than somebody completely selling microcap last year because they didn't think it would do well. And it winds up doing forty five percent. That's a much greater impact on on the actual return you get. Right. Whether or not the fund that you went into instead of microcap did a half a percent better than another fund that was in you know a high dividend large cap fund, mm-hmm. that's my point. And the other funny part of the article, Ethan, and I'll let you take it for the rest of the time here is um, they were saying tip the typical. This is right off the introduction of the study. The typical actively managed U.S. equity fund earns a negative after fee alpha. This well-documented underperformance gives rise to two important and related questions. First, why do actively managed funds underperform? Second, given this underperformance, why are the vast majority of mutual fund assets still invested in actively managed funds? That's the part I'm more interested in, to be honest with you. Yeah, me too. um, The widely accepted answer to the first question is that the efficient U.S. equity market make it difficult for managers to add value net of their fees. The second the answer to the second question, however, is subject to debate. Gruber, in 1996, who first highlighted this puzzle in his AFA presidential address, suggests that it might be driven by, quote, disadvantaged investors who are either ignorant of the underperformance or are behaving irrationally. A conclusion echoed by most recently in Burke and Van Binsbergen in 2012, their study. Um, and the rates have come up, come up, Ethan. It's encouraging because we've been talking about this issue now for almost over a decade, actually. <laughs> about right. Um, and now the amount of money that's, that is invested in more passively managed type of investment vehicles is north of 10%. Still incredibly yeah. low given what they're saying is what's puzzling the researchers here is given all these horrible results, why are people still doing it? Right, um, but it was two percent, you know, back a decade before, uh, and now it's up into the yeah. In the art, in this study, to show you how much of them uh, of the mutual funds out there are broker, given the total amount in active funds, how much is broker advised? Yeah, broker sold. There's six hundred and fifteen funds, which represent uh, it looks like eight hundred and thirty nine um, billion dollars in terms of percent of them. Does it have a percentage? Uh, the percent, yeah. Um, of total. Yeah, I don't, we'll I do have to run that. I just have the, the, the Maybe we can come back to the next, next show. Be interesting. Oh, market share. Here it is. 94. Oh, oh, we've got to take a break, I guess, Ethan. I got it. It's 98%. We're, wow. Uh, brokers, uh, you know what? Uh, we'll talk about it next week. Sorry about that. 
Well, thanks for tuning on Empirical Investing Radio. We'll uh, pick up next week on this conversation and then get into some other exciting details, Ethan. Sounds good. Have a great week, and we'll, we'll see you again soon. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 